So turn with me, and we're at Matthew 25. We're at the end of what is called the Olivet Discourse. This was the extended teaching that Jesus gave on what's going to happen at the end. We've been looking at that the past few weeks. And we've been hearing this theme of getting prepared for the end. And sometimes to get prepared, you need a sneak peek, you need a warning, you need a, a preview to get you ready for what is going to come. And growing up in Kansas, in part of what's called Tornado Alley, you become accustomed to this monthly ritual that would happen every 11 a.m. on the first Wednesday of the month. You would hear this ominous siren. That's a child. I remember going to my mother, Mama, what's that noise? Oh, that's the tornado siren. It wasn't cloudy that day, so I knew, what does this mean, Mom? It's a warning that they give before a tornado really comes. Today, they're just doing a test. And along with the siren, all TV and radio programming would also be interrupted with the siren, too, or another warning message. You just couldn't get away from it wherever you were. There was this warning about the potential of a tornado. And every Wednesday, though, follows as the siren goes off, and then on the TV or if you're listening on the radio, the siren would end or the warning signal would end, and they would say, this was a test and only a test. It wasn't the real thing, thankfully. But it rang the warning of the real thing. You knew growing up in that area that this is a real thing that could happen. And so we need to be ready. You need to be on alert. For when you hear that siren, you want to make sure it's not too late yourself. It gets you ready for the real thing whenever the real thing would come. And this sermon this morning is like the warning sign of that tornado siren. It's warning of you of something that's really coming and it's screaming loud and clear. You need to listen because you've got to be ready. There's too much at stake to take it for granted. It's a warning of the coming judgment. This text warns us to be ready. And how you do that, you take a test now. This is your pretest now. This is the warning signal now. So you can look and say, am I ready for this test on the end? Am I ready to see my God and be judged under his scrutinizing eye? So this call of this text is the siren to say, judge yourself now. Take the test now. Take the pretest now. Get ready now. Repent now so you can take cover now, so you can confess now, so you can repent now. Again, before it's too late, before the real thing comes, and there you are at Judgment Day. Because you see, even still, this siren goes off. It is only a test, but it's a test of your heart. It's a test of your preparedness. It's a test of your assurance. And frankly, what that means, if you look honestly at this text, it's going to hurt some. It's going to convict. If you're open to hear what the Lord would say, it's going to expose some weaknesses in your faith and in your walk. It's going to expose perhaps some hardness of heart. And even as you might think, as you're watching TV and the warning signal comes on, as if you're listening to a radio program, the warning signal comes on and it interrupts your daily programming, so to speak. And we become inconvenienced by it. We didn't want that. I just wanted to go on with my program. Well, this text is interrupting your daily life right now to get you ready, and it's worth it because it's actually a gracious, loving call. Because if you can hear my voice, it's not too late to get ready. It's not too late to repent. It's not too late to confess. It's not too late to change. It's not too late to be more conformed to Christ. This is a good, gracious call to interrupt our ignorant bliss of that eternal danger that is hanging over us in the judgment. So, test yourself 
Get ready. And that's the word for us this morning. Test yourself by these three truths about the coming judgment so you can be ready. Jesus has been talking a lot about being ready for what? This day, the judgment day. And these truths will prepare us for that. So what are they? These work something like a pre-test. These three truths are like three questions almost to test us, to prepare us for the day of judgment. And the first truth we must reckon with is this, that must grip us, is that judgment is for all. There is judgment for all. Everyone will be judged. No one will escape, not even you. Judgment comes for us all. And again, this sobering truth must grip us if we would ever bother to be ready ourselves, to prepare, to be ready. As we noted again, this text has all been about readiness. It's been this recurring theme through Jesus' teaching as he helps us anticipate the end, to be ready, to be watchful. I'm coming soon. Don't miss it. Don't be caught unprepared. Well, unprepared for what? What's the risk? Unprepared for the coming judgment. Because what Jesus gives us in the conclusion of this Olivet Discourse, it's called, he gives us a sneak preview of the judgment to come. That is, when he finally comes down to earth to set up his kingdom and he rules, it begins with judgment. But let's see it first. Let's see him coming to earth to establish his kingdom, his rule on earth. It begins in verse 31 of Matthew 25. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, we heard about this throne representing his reign and rule earlier, really as an aside from Jesus when he made a promise to his apostles, namely that they were going to sit on seats of judgment over the people of Israel. If you remember, this was back in Matthew 19, verse 28. And the disciples wondered, hey, we've given up so much for you. What are we going to get? And here's what Jesus told them. They will be rewarded. Here he said in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, okay, that's the exact same terminology we find in Matthew 25, our text. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the establishment, the setup of the kingdom of Christ on earth. When he sets Israel as the central nation of the world and where the King Christ will reign for a thousand years, as we've been talking about in this discourse. What that means, though, if we understand this aright, most specifically then, this judgment we're looking at here at the end of Matthew 25. Again, if we've set our end times chronology correctly and pieced it together, that means this particular judgment, not everyone's going to experience it. Not everyone is going to go through this specific judgment he discusses here at the end of Matthew 25. That is, as we begin to correlate all of the scriptures, we discover that there is not a single judgment that comes at the end, but rather a series of judgments. Three, actually. I'm going to review them for you. First of all, believers in Christ, the church, will be judged after the rapture. Remember, we talked about the rapture. The rapture is that sudden event where one is taken and one is left. That's the vocabulary we saw in Matthew 24. One is taken and is taken up to be with Christ. That's where Christ raptures the church off of the earth, snatches the church off of the earth to be with himself in heaven. 
Paul describes it like this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, the other believers, caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And that's our hope. Praise God. We're waiting. Oh, Jesus, come back. But even when we are caught with him in the air, we return to heaven with him. But what happens next? We appear before his judgment seat. We are then judged by him. The Apostle Paul describes it like this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. All in Christ, you will experience this. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All believers. We will all appear before Christ there, judged by our thankfully merciful Lord, but we will be judged by him, even by what we've done. It says, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's the first judgment. The judgment right after the rapture of the church. But as the church is raptured off of the earth, then God pours out seven years of tribulation, of judgment upon the earth. And that's what Jesus has described in Matthew 24, what we've known to be the birth pains and then the great tribulation. But at the conclusion of the seven years we've talked about, Jesus returns. He touches down on earth to establish his rule and kingdom, to establish peace for a thousand years. And that's what we see described as we open our text in verse 31 of Matthew 25. That's when he comes and he sets up his glorious throne on earth. But upon a setting up his throne and his rule, it begins with a judgment. He comes down, he establishes authority, and then he immediately judges. He makes this great separation, a distinction forever made between those who are believers and unbelievers of those who survive the tribulation. So again, he raptures the church, he then judges the earth for seven years, and those who might actually survive the tremendous horrors that we've read about in Matthew 24, the humanity that survives, they are immediately judged and separated between those who have been faithful to Christ and those who have not been. The unbelieving will be punished, these are the goats, executed and eternally judged, while the believing, the sheep, they're going to survive, they're going to enter the blessed rule of their king for a thousand years. So that's the second judgment. The judgment made to determine who will enter the millennium. And then finally, the third judgment. It's the one that we most typically think of when we think of the judgment at the end. It's what's called in Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment. It's the final judgment when all the remaining dead are judged. Judged by the things it says in Revelation written in the books. Where the guilty are given over to eternal punishment, the lake of fire. While those names written in the book of life enter into eternity to live with God forever in the new heavens and new earth. So if that's the framework for all of the judgments, again, one right after the rapture of the church, you have one at the end of the seven-year tribulation anticipating the millennium, and then after the millennium and going into the new heavens and new earth, you have one final judgment, the great white throne judgment, where all the dead are judged. So of those, we're talking about that middle, the second of the three judgments. That's the one we read about in Matthew 25, verse 31. It's called the sheep and goat judgment, and you can see that why. Again, this is the judgment right before the millennial kingdom. So again, this is probably not a judgment that any of you or I will enter into specifically. If we're in the church, we're going to be raptured out. Or if you somehow survive and you didn't yet trust in Christ, and you might not likely make it through the seven years of tribulation. It'll be so horrible. 
Many of us, if any of us, will not see this sheep and goat judgment personally. Well, then why have it? Why do we read about this? Why are we studying this? Because understand, the nature of this judgment differs little from the other two at all. That is, the very principles and picture here of this judgment applies to all three and to any judgment God would give. Whenever or whatever the judgment is that you are supposed to go through, whether that's before Christ after the rapture, or whether that's right before the millennium, or whether that's right before the new heavens, new earth, or the great white throne, either way, we will all undergo a judgment, and that before a holy, perfect God. God will judge you. He will judge you for what you've done, for how you've lived. Oh, but Rick, (laughs) I've trusted in Christ. He took all my judgment. And to that we say, yes, amen. That is glorious news. There is no condemnation, and so then no need to fear the day of judgment for those who are in Christ. None. And yet, remember what we saw in 2 Corinthians 5. He will still judge us by our works, according to what we've done, whether good or bad. Truly, what we've done in the body will testify then to what our trust of our heart is or was. You see, In other words, a genuine faith will show itself. It must show itself in our actions, the way we live, even at the final judgment. We are saved by faith, but we'll talk about this. It's a genuine faith that works. Or as we looked at the men's weekender, it's true repentance. And so then, stop now, take a deep breath, and take stock of your life. Where is your life before this holy God? Is there evidence? Is there fruit? Are there any corroborating evidences to convict you of a faithful believer in Christ now? That's what the judgment seat's going to be like. Does your faith work, so to speak, to borrow from James? Because again, if you do trust Him, if you do have genuine faith, if the Spirit then has caused new life and changed your heart and brought you to Christ, it will show in the way you live. You will not be perfect, but there will be proofs. So judge yourself now. By the gospel and the word of God, judge yourself now. Take the pretest before the final test comes, lest you be caught unawares, unprepared, and horrifyingly surprised at your sudden doom. No, you will be judged. Second, the second truth we must reckon with, help us prepare for the coming judgment is this. There will be blessings for all that serve his people. There will be blessings for all that serve his people, verses 34 through 40. Next, we turn to uncover what's being looked at or assessed in this judgment. What's the evidence provided or brought forward to prove the genuineness of our faith, our conversion? Or back referencing the context, what creates the separation? How does the shepherd know? What's the basis by which we know if one's a sheep or if you're a goat to go on the right hand of favor or the left hand of rejection? What's the kind of fruit we're looking for? And this is what the king will explain. But first, note his commendation and invitation to his sheep, those on the right hand of favor. So look at verse 34 now of Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, 
You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, this is interesting. For it appears as though the very works and deeds are what merit this invitation, is what earns this invitation to come into the kingdom, doesn't it? He invites them in, says, because for of all the good things they've done. Inherit the kingdom for I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me and so on. And so it's not entirely wrong to try and make that connection. But, 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 it's interesting. It's interesting to note that this is not precisely how things work. That is, it's not quite how the story works here, even in this text. Look carefully at how things begin. Do not miss these words. Look at what the king says. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In that way, forget merits, forget earning something. There are two astounding graces here for those that come on His right, those who receive the invitation to come in. This isn't simply or merely fundamentally by works at all. There's grace here. We see it first in that they are called blessed, or they are called favored, by the Father. With this kind of God and King, that's not something you can earn. That's a gift. That's why we call it grace. It's divine grace from above given to them. And this blessed favor is something to, akin to what we heard about earlier in the gospel in Matthew chapter 16. There, if you remember, Jesus had pulled away with his closest disciples and he posed to them the million-dollar soul-saving question, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. He gets the right answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But remember, what was Jesus' response to Peter's right response? Oh, Peter, you're so smart. You figured it out. Peter, I knew you had it in you. I knew you had that insight. Way to go, buddy. Nothing like this. He doesn't commend Peter's keen insight or bold faith. Here's what he does. Here's our Lord's reply. Matthew 16, 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Your clear faith is not evidence of your superior intellect or your spiritual insight. It testifies that God has blessed you. He has given you a revelation so that you would know God, so that you would trust God, that you wouldn't just hear the word, but you would believe it and act upon it. That comes from Him, that He would reveal His truth to your heart. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, you have been blessed, you have been graced, Peter, evidenced by this clear profession of faith. So back to Matthew 25 then. To tying more of this together, we hear that those entering the kingdom, they're also entering a kingdom that's been prepared for them ahead of time, since the foundation of the world, that is, before time began, before they were born, before they were created, before they were anything in someone's eye, God purposed to bless them and prepare to give this kingdom to them. 
before they'd done anything good or bad, but merely by His gracious choice. God's sovereign, gracious favor rested upon these blessed sheep, and that from the very beginning, or really you should say before the beginning. It's all grace. And of course, Paul describes our own salvation with such terms, doesn't he? In the opening of the book of Ephesians. He uses terms like blessing, grace, and even set upon us before the foundation of the world. Listen to this. This is Ephesians 1, verse 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, but when? Before the foundation of the world. You see, this plan to bless, this plan to favor, this plan was set in motion. It was planned before anything else was planned, before anything was created, let alone before anyone exercised their so-called free will. Before it all, He set His love, He set His mercy on His people, His sheep. But why? What was this about? Why would He do it this way? Paul tells us, Ephesians 1.6. He says, what is this about? According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. That's what this is about. To the praise of His glorious grace. Why does God do it this way? It's all about His glory. It's all about putting His greatness on display. Not how great you are in the judgment. Not how much better you live the Christian life than someone else. It's about showing how marvelously merciful He is. Putting His greatness on display, even at the judgment, for all to see. To see what? That He is a bountifully gracious and good God. That's what. And all that through Jesus Christ. And so we praise this God. We bless His name. There's no one who loves like Him. There's no one who is gracious like Him. There's no one who's so good and as marvelous as Jesus Christ is. And so to return to Matthew 25 then, you see, from the beginning, or again, you might really should say, from before the beginning, it's all been about grace, God's unmerited favor to His people. Ah, thank you, Rick. That was encouraging. I kind of needed to hear that reading that text. But how does this work? Because going back to Matthew 25, I don't know about you, but the way I read it, it talks a lot about works, Rick. Where do we go now? And so it works like this, because I hear what you're saying. It works like this. These good works that are drawn out here in this judgment from those who are the sheep, these good works evidence this very thing. They evidence that God had favored them. That God had indeed blessed them. That God had indeed called them and redeemed them and changed them and given them His Spirit and lived through them such that they were changed. They lived a compassionate life. But the point is, grace comes first. Then His grace gets to work. And it looks like serving others. And doing so with compassion. Like He showed us when we didn't deserve it. And what kind of works are we talking about here? But very practical very practical works of love, meeting needs. I mean, we're talking the very basics here. Caring for folks' most basic needs in life. You can start there, just the bare necessities. Giving people water, shelter, food, invitations in, giving them clothing, care when they're sick, visiting them in prison. Coming to folks in their most needy moments. And consider this, again, if we have our chronology of the end times correct, so this is 
particular judgment for those who come through the tribulation, all of those, if we can say it that way, what is really going to be hell on earth for seven years? There will be a lot of needy people in those days. There will be ample opportunities to meet people's needs for food, water, shelter, visiting in prison, and so forth. But we can also surmise during that time, you go and try and meet the needs of those who stand with Christ against the world order, so to speak, it's going to cost you even more to stand with Christ's people, to come and minister to them. We see it now. We see it in the early church. You see it in Hebrews chapter 10. What do we see in Hebrews chapter 10? We see these dear believers, they're going to go visit their fellow Christians in prison. And as they go to visit their fellow brothers in prison, what happens? Their homes get ransacked and their goods get stolen. And they come home, but with joy, because they know they have a better and abiding possession in heaven. And that's the same truth the church lives through or believers live through every generation. But this is at times the cost of Christian fellowship. And that's true in all times, but it will be acute in those who live through that seven years. But what does that mean for our time and our days like these? I mean, because I don't see many of my fellow Christians or brothers in the church so needy as this, what I see described here. I mean, what should this look like in our lives now when we live in such a prosperous and affluent society? And we can be thankful for this. Few of us really have to pray for our daily bread as in a desperate, don't know what I'm going to eat this day type way, right? We can be thankful for that for his abundance. Nevertheless, there are still needs here because there's still sin here. There's still brokenness here. And that multiplies into physical needs and spiritual ones in our own congregation. Oh, Rick, I look around. I don't really see any. If that's true, maybe that just means you don't know us very well yet. Do you know anybody? Have you engaged, really pursued to get to know people where they're at? And maybe you have. Maybe you've made some strides. Maybe you're regularly in attendance. Maybe you're in a fellowship group. Maybe you're in a small group and reading the scriptures with others. But as you engage, are you looking to care and meet people's needs? Are you willing, as you engage a believer, to try and put two and two together and say, how can I help them? What might they need? How might I be a blessing to them? Because really, this is the, the, the foundation of it all, isn't it? More than the actual deeds themselves. It's the mentality. It's the heart. It's the heart that loves like Christ loves, with whatever capacity it has to do it. Which, if you have the ability, it means sacrificing tangibly for others. That shows a real care, doesn't it? I mean, it's like in the way you might serve your own child. You just do it without even thinking. No matter how sacrificial it is. Why? Because you care. You love them. That's what you're just going to do. Of course I'm going to do that for them. Well, that's the kind of love and care that's commended here. Tangible care for one another in the body. Now, what's astounding is that while these works that they do are so good, so caring, the trouble is they don't seem to remember a thing about doing them. Look at verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? They have no recollection of these deeds of sacrifice. They have no idea what their king's talking about. And that's surprising because when you meet a celebrity or somebody famous or someone famous to you, especially if you've only done that once or something like this, it's hard to forget that. You certainly remember 
Well, to make the, con- or the comparison, you would certainly remember serving your king if you were given the opportunity, wouldn't you? Helping your king so personally. I mean, think about that in your history of your life. Have you ever met a celebrity? And then just, you can call it to mind, even though it happened so many years later. I was trying to think back through my own life experience. And the first celebrity I remember kind of meeting, who's now the recently deceased actor, Bob Saget. My family ran into him. I can't even remember. It was at some Southern California theme park. And we were ribbing each other like, no way. That, that, is, it, is it? Is that Bob Saget? I think it is. Are we on America's Funny Home Videos right now? I want a free t-shirt. I mean, how cool. But then it's like, well, why does he get a cut in line before me? That was not cool. And I didn't get a t-shirt about that. But it's funny. I mean, that was some over 30 years ago, and I can call it to mind like that. When you meet somebody famous, you might remember that. And again, to make the comparison, if they had served their king, they would surely remember. I mean, wouldn't they? They would, unless, of course, they didn't recognize their king. If they didn't know it was him. And that's the connection the king makes between them and us here. Look at verse 40. And the king will answer them, well, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This is astonishing. Incredible, really. And so technically speaking, they were right. They never saw their king hungry, thirsty, alone, sick, and so forth, to then come and minister to his needs. But get this. This king so identifies with his people such that every one of his people, even the least of them, the smallest, the weakest, the least gifted, the least industrious, the very least in every way, this king so identifies with them, is so united with them, that when you serve any one of those brothers, even the very least of them, you've served the king himself. You've really done it to him. We'll consider that powerful truth more in a moment, but suffice it to say here, The most tangible way to serve Jesus is to serve his people, is to care for his people, to meet their needs. Because really what we see, you're not serving really even them, you're serving him. That's what his people do. They serve and love like he does, especially to his own. But this works both ways. And so then we see Jesus does not take it lightly when his people are mistreated, or I should say when he is mistreated, or as we'll see, ignored in their need. Rather, what we find is that there will be curses for those who neglect his people, verses 41 to 46. So in the case of the goats now, those on his left, they may not have been the church's persecutors, only they ignored her. They ignored her when their members were suffering and in need. Look at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Wow, this is heavy. Jesus describes here the worst of punishments for those found on his left. Depart from me cursed ones, into the eternal fire that is prepared especially for the great evil man himself, the devil. And what must one do? What horrific thing have they done to deserve such horrific wrath, eternal wrath? You know what they apparently did? 
they apparently did this. They did nothing. They did nothing when Christ needed them. But like the others, and they realize, wow, this case is not going so well for us. They're starting to make a defense, thinking to themselves, well, what are you talking about? I, I, I didn't see you. I, I didn't ignore you. I would never have done that. I love Jesus. He's my king. I'd do anything to honor and serve him. Well, Jesus thinks otherwise. Again, they say, verse 44, then they will answer their Lord saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And we did not minister to you. But the answer is the same in reply, but it's just reversed. Verse 45. Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you. As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. In other words, guilty, condemned because you ignored my brothers, my people when they were in need. And so what you really did was you ignored me. You cannot so disregard those I love so much and say that you love me. That's sobering, isn't it? They were condemned for sins of what we call sins of omission. There are sins we commit, but then there are good things we don't do, and that's sins we omit, whether through cowardice or selfishness. We think we're too busy, whatever it is. The good things we refrain from doing, we omit, and so we sin. Not doing the right thing we ought to do, as James says, this is sin. Now, for who? Who is the target of this? Well, he mentions the least of these. This is, it has particular to do with whoever the least of these are. Well, who are they? Many have understood it, even best-selling Christian books that we've seen. Talk about the least of these, that these are any fellow suffering human. But understand that term, least of these, when it's used earlier in Matthew's gospel, like in Matthew 18, it's referring to Jesus' followers specifically. Or again, even as you bump your eyes up to verse 40, we read this. And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. And in Matthew 12, Jesus told us who his true family is, who his brothers are. He said this in Matthew 12, 48 and 49. But he replied to the man who told him. Remember, Mary and some of his family, physical family, were trying to see Jesus. And here's that Jesus replied, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Mark's gospel adds, They are the ones who listen to my word and obey it. These are my family. His brothers are his disciples, made so family by the work of the cross and the price that he paid to make us at peace with God. His cross makes us family and puts us into his family. And then he calls us to love one another in the family, compassionately meeting needs. That's our priority. It doesn't simply mean any suffering person. Though, let me say, that does not mean we should use this text as some excuse to ignore other people's needs, even for those that don't yet trust Christ. It's like, oh good, my neighbor's not a Christian, forget him. It's not what Jesus is calling us to. But he is calling us to a priority. So we should serve all, but especially those in the household of faith. And that's what's meant here. How you treat God's people in their need is how you treat Jesus. And if you can't have compassion on them, he won't have or hasn't had compassion on you. And he will not in that final day. 
Again, for why? You cannot love him and not love his bride. They go together. You can't say, well, I really like you, but your family, eh, doesn't work that way. Really, more than that, our love for him should compel us to show love to his church. So then, how would you rate your love for the church on a scale of 1 to 10? 1 being you hate him, 10 being you love him like Jesus. Maybe you're like, "Ah, I'm a 2 or 3. I don't hate him. I mean, come on, or most of them. But in the main, you're indifferent. You could take it or leave it. You know, when it comes to church, it's like, "Ah, if I get to it, sure. And even when you do come to church, you'd rather duck out and run than you would see and try and engage your fellow brothers and sisters and say, ah, man, I wonder how they're doing. I wonder how God has me to serve them today. And again, if this is the case about you, you duck out or you're not engaged, you're, you're avoiding relationships here. I mean, would you be surprised that you don't know what others' needs are? That you're not looking for them? And then you got to ask, is that because you don't care? But Lord, when? When were you here and you needed encouragement on a Sunday morning? Lord, when? When did you need someone to come sit with you in the foyer? Because you're really hurting on a Sunday morning. Lord, when? When did you need someone to come sit with you at the hospital and pray with you? Lord, when did you need someone to put you up for the night or have you over for dinner or ask you how you're doing so you could be encouraged? Lord, when? When did you need a text or just a note from somebody to know that you weren't forgotten? When, Lord? When? I don't ever remember seeing you in my church. Because if I did, oh, I would roll out the red carpet for you because I love you. But again, in verse 45, but then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Why is it that we are so more inclined to care for the notable, the powerful, the prestigious, the respectable, the cool, the in crowd, whatever? Why do we give them attention or, or give the attention to those that we're comfortable with And then we ignore the others, the outsider to the awkward. I dare ask, is it because our serving is often selfish? Even our pursuit of fellowship is often selfish, mainly driven by the kickbacks that we get back. Thankfully, our Christ didn't serve us this way. Because to be clear, that's the thing with serving the least of these. Be honest, they will be a drain. They will be a liability. It's not an investment that you're going to reap an earthly return on. You don't do it for that. Why? Why do you serve the least of these? Why? Because when you look at that dear believer, what do you see? You see Christ, the one who loved you, pursued the least of these, that's you, and came and died for you. And you want to love him back. And you know he indwells everyone who trusts in him. And you know what then? That kind of gift, that love, that loves with no strings attached, that shows the work of the Spirit in you. That shows the genuineness of faith in you. That gift of God in you, that's a divine gift to love like that. That's a divine gift to be changed like that. That gift verifies to the world, and it will do so at the judgment, that you have eternal life, that you are His, and that He has owned you, that He has blessed you with His grace. But for those that ignore Christ, or ignoring His needy people, He promises here eternal wrath. Verse 46. And even these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. So note this, there's going to be judgment for everyone, and there's also going to be eternity for everyone. Everyone. Some will go unto eternal life, but others will go to an equally eternal punishment. Revelation 14 describes it like this, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. It's inconceivably horrifying. 
And for what? What did they do? Well, it might be that they did nothing. They did nothing when their brother or the person of Christ needed them. They remained unmoved, lacking compassion. And to that, I think we all have to say, God, be merciful to us, right? And indeed, that's what astounds with this God, is that He's still merciful, even though He's a great judge and king. He abounds in mercy. He died for you to seal God's mercy for you, to satisfy His justice, to assure of His mercy. And why? Because He loves you still, even though you haven't loved Him, even though you've been selfish and you've turned a blind eye to people's needs. But yet He gives you this warning because He loves you. And He says, confess it, know my forgiveness, and repent from this sin. And in the face of all of our follies and rebellion and our selfishness, that He would still forgive us, that He would still love us, that we can have a renewed assurance of His love, what does that do to our own capacity to love? Apostle John writes it like this, 1 John 4, 19, We love, but why? Because He first loved us. You can't earn this love, and actually you did all you could to sever yourself from it. But he still came, he still loved, he still died, he still rose, he still lives, he still intercedes, he still forgives and still reconciles sinners who call upon him because the cross is that powerful and his love cannot be stopped. So despite your sins and failings, he loves anyway. What are you going to do with it? What does that do for your love for him? What does that do for your love for others? So confess where you've come short. Know his love at the cross and love the unlovable like he loves you. Because that's what he's done. John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So brothers and sisters, may we let the world see, and then Christ will show it off at the judgment. And they will see that we were his people, that he is a gracious king. Let's pray to him. We need his help in this. Father, we come to you asking for mercy. We thank you, O Jesus, that you indeed are a gracious king. We thank you, Spirit, that you convict, that you challenge us even in your word, and so forgive us. But we take great assurance in your promises that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive because you are so merciful. Now, may we know your mercy now and walk in obedience, showing mercy to others because you've been so merciful to us. Help us love like we've been loved. And again, that people would see that you are a living, gracious Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.